Today's sermon is part seven of our Daniel series and part two of chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Daniel chapter four. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 887 and 888. Um, And if you don't have a church Bible, you don't have a Bible with you, stick your hand up. Jonathan and Sue will get you a Bible. Just stick your hand nice and high. They'll get you one. Um, If you don't own a Bible and you're getting given one from the church, uh, please take that with you. That's yours to keep. We want to make sure that you have a Bible at all times to read and study God's Word. So Daniel chapter 4, that's where we're heading. If you're using church Bibles, page 887, if you're using your own Bibles, go to roughly Ezekiel and you will find Daniel. Uh, Just as you turn there and as we begin to start uh, the sermon this morning, I want to remind you of what we went through last week in the first 18 verses of Daniel 4. We learned that Nebuchadnezzar had another dream, and this dream was one that terrified him. It was a dream of a great, enormous tree that was beautiful to look at. It served animals with food and shelter. However, God sent a messenger and declared that this beautiful tree would be cut down. It would be destroyed and all that would be left would be a stump in the ground. Uh, The magicians and the wise men of the time were unable to give an answer of what this meant. They had no clue, but Daniel was called because he had been gifted by God with the ability to interpret dreams and he was summoned before the king once again. It was clear that this was a divine dream and therefore it needed a divine revelation. Uh, Through the first 18 verses, we learned that for God to rule over all means he can sometimes interrupt our comfort. Andrew, I'll catch you at the end, okay? We're just focusing on this. We're just focusing on this right now, Andrew, okay? Um, God can sometimes interrupt our comfort for the sake of his glory. Key thing we learned was that this led us to realize that profound personal discomfort can sometimes be the necessary precursor of spiritual growth. Let me just say that again, that profound personal discomfort is often necessary for spiritual growth and change. This is what we learned last week. As we continue today into the middle section, and we're going to go quite close towards the end of chapter 4, we will learn this about God, that he declares that all should bow before the throne of Jesus Christ. No other king, no other kingdom, no other man-made idol will do. We are all tasked to fall on our knees before the creator God. So we're in chapter 4 and we're on verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Uh, In contrast to verse 9, we read in verse 9 that Nebuchadnezzar stated that no mystery would be a trouble for Daniel. Yet we find Daniel this week perplexed, meaning he he was puzzled by the dream. He was terrified by the dream itself. It seems the dream had nothing to do with enemies or adversaries of Nebuchadnezzar, but in fact about the king himself. Uh, Notice how the king kind of superficially says, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Nebuchadnezzar's fear would have been that Daniel would have known what it meant and then didn't tell the king because it was so terrifying. And so Nebuchadnezzar in his focus to get an answer uh, brings about some compassion. Uh, Most commentators would suggest that this was an insincere compassion because he only had one focus. Give me the answer, Daniel. 
And if I need to say soft words to you, then I will. But in contrast, I believe Daniel's compassion is real. He was troubled by what God had told him, troubled by the truth of what this dream meant, troubled by what the king was going to suffer. Daniel was to the king as Timothy was to the apostle Paul. We read in Philippians 2, it's on the screen. I have no one else like him. This is Paul talking about Timothy, who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Daniel was similar to Timothy. He had deep compassion because he knew of his own father. Uh, we have no greater example of genuine compassion than that of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus to go to the cross, to suffer for our sakes because he had compassion. The compassion he showed to countless sinners and those with disease who were ignored and reviled by the communities around them. Uh, the compassion that we read in Colossians 1 up on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Do you notice the word that keeps coming up? The God of comfort, the comfort he provides, the comfort that will flow through us. This is the comfort that Jesus has for each one of us, the, the compassion that he has. He has affection for each one of us. In John 15, he calls those that follow Jesus friends. In John 14 and 17, he declares that his friends do not need to be troubled in life because the Spirit, God's helper, is going to show compassion on them and going to help them through life. Uh, I've read lots of different explanations on the compassion of Jesus. And one of the best uh, was by a chap called uh, D.L. Moody. Uh, just listen to this. D.L. Moody, an American evangelist, wrote this. No matter how low down you are, no matter what your disposition has been, you may be low in your thoughts, words, and actions. You may be selfish. Your heart may be overflowing with corruption and wickedness. Yet Jesus will have compassion upon you. He will speak comforting words to you, not treat you coldly or spurn you, as perhaps those of the earth would, but will speak tender words and words of love and affection and kindness. Just come at once. He is a faithful friend, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Know this morning that Jesus has compassion for you. He knows your situation and he loves you. He loved you to the point of death on a cross. He loved you so that you could repent from that wickedness, to be set free, to live a life full of the joy that we've learned about. Not a fleeting moment of happiness, but of everlasting joy. And that is the same compassion we are to show one another, to be kind about one another, to be kind toward one another. To be ready to speak good, compassionate, loving words to one another in the storm of life. The compassion of Jesus should flow through each one of us, just as it flowed through Daniel to the egocentric King Nebuchadnezzar. Not one person should not receive the compassion of those in Jesus. Verse 20. 
Uh, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to wild animals and having nesting places and branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Uh, notice the repetition here. Last week we covered this. Last week this was in verses 1 to 18. The, the same dream is repeated. Uh, Daniel's showing that he not only understands the dream, but he wants to repeat it back to Nebuchadnezzar so he doesn't twist it or change it. Daniel knows what's going on here. And we get the first indication that the king himself is the tree. His kingdom has become so vast and so strong. His kingdom has become so powerful, the whole world sees it. Like the vastness of Europe or Africa or America, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom stretched for miles upon miles. Uh, the place where Miriam and I were in the States uh, for a, a, a couple of years before we came here, uh, th this place only had the population of about Lincoln in the whole state. So it's a massive state. And you could stand at your front door of the evening time and you could see the sunset and you could see the curvature of the earth. So flat and so vast. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was even bigger than that, even po more powerful than that. And at this stage, you can just imagine the smugness as a king. <laughs> yeah, that's my kingdom. Everybody knows it. Isn't that amazing? How powerful am I? Verse 23. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord and the King. The great Nebuchadnezzar, the great kingdom he had, is going to be cut down. We see the second half, the dark side of this dream. A pastor friend once said to me, you will never see the beauty of heaven until you know the depravity of hell. Something is only good when you know the opposite is bad. Um, the experiment of this, I think, is done quite a lot in kind of a children's setting where uh, they are giving one Haribo now, but if you're patient, in half an hour you can have two Haribos. And you can see the dilemma children have. Oh, but there's a Haribo now. But if I wait, I might get two. Oh, no. And it's really interesting to watch to make that decision. It is like that here. Nebuchadnezzar has taken the kingdom of the earth now. And he has forgotten if he was just patient for God, he would have had everlasting joy. But isn't it amazing that this interpretation has certainty to it? I don't know about you, but when I pray sometimes, I pray for things that seem impossible and nothing happens. And evidently the answer is probably no. But I struggle because I think this doesn't seem to have a certain end to it. I'm the type of guy that likes to know uh, how to finish things. If you're in our household, if Miriam bakes it, ah, that looks about right. If I bake it, that's one gram out. Okay, we need to add in a gram, we need to take a gram. I'm very clear, I have to follow instructions. I need to know the end. Well, God says here to Nebuchadnezzar, trust me, I have an end. I have a certainty to this. And God has a certain answer. Notice the decree comes from the most high God. 
The decree comes straight to the Lord my King, Daniel says. So in chapter 2, you could say that God pointed out that there was no nation stronger than Jesus. In chapter 3, you could declare that those faithful in Jesus will be blessed. In chapter 4, I think you can say that it's time for Nebuchadnezzar to listen up because this is no longer about the nation. This is no longer about the people. This is no longer about faithfulness. This is about Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verse 25, you will be driven away from the people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. And Nebuchadnezzar will be taken from his great vast kingdom that everyone can see and he will become like an animal. He will sleep under the stars, no longer under his great vast temples he's built. He will eat grass for food, not like the uh, delicacies that we read in chapter one that he force fed uh, the Israelites. He will be stuck in an animal state for seven years and he will only be freed when he bows before the Most High God and declares him as king. The stump of his kingdom will remain, and if he repents, he will be given his kingdom back. Um, It strikes me very similar to Job 121, which is on the screen. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Nebuchadnezzar was being humbled. He was being reminded he came with nothing and he can so easily leave with nothing. Uh, The problem Nebuchadnezzar was suffering was pride and arrogance. Uh, William Temple uh, wrote, I make myself in a host of ways the center of the universe. Uh, Many of us struggle with the same sin, don't we? Uh, That we want to be the central important person. Uh, All you have to do is have a, a children's birthday party and all the presents go to that one child and just look at the faces of all the other children because they're not the center of attention. Uh, I, have a, I have a dog that um, if she's not the center of attention will make my life misery. <laughs> she will pine at the door wanting a walk and then when you go on a walk she then doesn't want to go on a walk and then I have to take her home and all this sort of stuff. Even down to the very pets we have, they like to be the center of attention. That is our society, to be right in the middle of everything. And sometimes we have good intentions when we want center of attention. Uh, Sometimes we try and sneak our way into being the center of attention. Uh, I remember uh, serving in a church and hearing locally of three churches that were going to merge So they only had to run one building. They didn't want to run three buildings. They wanted to run one. Everything was going well. The papers were about to be signed. And then the question was asked, which church would be listed first in the name of the new church? Because no one wanted a new name. They wanted their name for the great merged church. Two churches closed. Not because they merged, but because of the fighting that came from it. 
You see, we read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Notice there is one name missing. Yours. Jesus is the one exalted. Jesus is the one that is lifted up. Jesus is the one that all bow before. Jesus is the one that every tongue will acknowledge as Lord. Not you, not I, not Daniel, not Nebuchadnezzar. This was the lesson that he was learning, that he is not in control, that he is not supreme, that he does not get the glory, and that God gets it all verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Uh, Daniel calls for the king to do two distinct things. Renounce his sins, that's one side. Repent from the wrong and then do what is right. Stop doing wrong, do what is right. The second thing is renounce his wickedness get rid of that evilness that is in his heart, repent from his anger, that was step one. Second, then be kind to the oppressed. There is a, a cause and action here. Get rid of the sin, bring about good. And see, the greatness of this huge king, this vast kingdom, had one simple issue. Nebuchadnezzar was still a slave. He was a slave to sin. John 8 verse 34 on the screen said, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a sin, a slave to sin. Nebuchadnezzar needed to be saved because he was a slave to sin. What an unbelievable thought for the great Nebuchadnezzar that he was a slave to sin. He was no higher than the lowest person in his community. Daniel's advice, notice, advice, not command, was to deal with his sin now. He advised, God will look upon you kindly when you repent. He has compassion for you. I think often as Christians, we can get caught up in commanding people to do what is right. You must stop doing that. I command you to be a better person. I command you to have compassion. It's not what we read here. We're not center of attention. We don't get that right. God has that right. All we can do as Christians is advise. Go to God's word. See how God wants you to live. Live in such a way as to please God. And you know, as all people, we have the same chance that Nebuchadnezzar had. We have a chance to repent as well. Revelation 3.20 says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. We are just like Nebuchadnezzar. We know we're sinners. We know we face the punishment of sin. We know that the stump of our life is there. Nothing is growing. Nothing's working out for us. And Jesus is standing at that door of our hearts and he is knocking proactively knocking. He's not just sitting there on his laurels. He is knocking at your door. And he is saying, open the door. Bow before me and I will bring you everlasting joy. Not because he's going to make our life all rosy and nice and easy, 
In fact, the exact opposite. I can't necessarily say my 20 years of being a Christian has been easy. But I can tell you one thing. That joy, that joy of knowing when the end comes, then it is beautiful. Verse 28. All this happened to the king Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Twelve months the Lord was patient with Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months he had the chance to repent. Twelve months he refused to change. And yet again, we see the deep-rooted pride and arrogance that surfaced up. He looked at his great kingdom and said, How great is Babylon! You could just imagine him standing on his tower, just with the smug face, with his arms wide over, Look at my great kingdom! I, the great king Nebuchadnezzar. He had built all of this, the great wall of Babylon. One of the seven uh, natural wonders of the world. The, the hanging gardens of Babylon he had built. Under his hand they figured out how to get water from a valley to the top of the valley so it would flow down the garden. The great Nebuchadnezzar looked out and at that moment of arrogance, verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by you for until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nail like the claws of a bird. How great is my kingdom! And immediately God took it away from him. Twelve months he had the opportunity to say the most high God is great. And he did not. And God took it. He lost his home. He lost his sanity. He became like an animal. His hair grew like an eagle's. His nails grew long, like long claws. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, now an animal for seven years. It was as if Nebuchadnezzar wanted to call God's bluff. But God wasn't bluffing. Romans uh, chapter 2 verse 2 on the screen now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth so when you a mere human being pass judgment on them and yet do the same things do you think you will escape God's judgment or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness his forbearance and patience not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance Nebuchadnezzar tried to outplay God. He tried to call his bluff and he lost. God's patience was to drive him to repentance and he refused. He was given time, not to abuse that time, but bow before God. The question I have this morning is, are you calling God's bluff? Do you think that you have the time to do what you like? Do you have the time to waste on your life, on possessions, or on wealth, or on material items? 
Do you think you have the time to waste your life on substances or sexual passions or an an inflated self-worth? 2 Peter chapter 3 says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand snowless. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We love that verse. God has been patient with me. Next verse. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. God is being patient with us, not so that we waste our life, but that we would come to Jesus and repent from our sins. Know this though, God's patience will not last forever. He will come like a thief in the night when no one expects him and he will come and lay destruction to the old sinful earth. And for those in Christ, for those who follow Jesus, they will rise with him. So, for those calling God's bluff, at this moment, you will lose. Understand this morning, I'm not preaching this sermon to browbeat you over the head and say, right, you've got to get better. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that I pray that you have the fear of God in you. Because he is coming. And you do not want to call his bluff because you are on borrowed time and you will lose. Do you see, just as certain as God was with Nebuchadnezzar, he is as certain with you and me. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when. It could be tonight. It could be tonight. Isn't that a stark reality? that child you haven't talked salvation to with, that brother or sister that you're so annoyed with you haven't picked up the phone, your own heart. Tonight, God could call you out. Are we really going to risk calling God's bluff? Are we really going to do that? Continuing in 2 Peter It says this, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day. Notice, looking forward to the day that Jesus will come. Not fearing, but looking forward to that day. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God is calling us to bow before him, and he promises to show compassion on all that do. But it's interesting, when we, when we go through passages like this, we're so quick to point the finger at other people. Hey, they haven't bowed before Jesus. They need to hear this message. Well, as Christians, we don't get off scot-free either. Uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned 
Be on your guard so that you may not carried away by the error of lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. What a challenge from Peter. You have been warned. Jesus is coming back. Your life on this earth will end. What are you going to be caught doing? Are you going to be caught calling God's bluff? No way, he can't take me. Do you not know who I am? I'm the great so-and-so. Do you not know the abilities I have, the degrees I have? Do you not know the wealth I have? Do you not know that I don't care about life and I'm just going to throw it away? Do you not know who I am? Where do you want to be when Jesus calls you? Do you want to be found in error? Do you want to be found in the world, in a worldly context? Do you want to be found having twisted God's word to gain popularity? Or do you want to be found with this on your lips, to him be glory both now and forever, amen. Now, when I preach these sort of sermons, uh, quite often I get an email, (laughs) usually comes in the form of an email, that was a bit too hard. Uh, This has actually been my life experience. And that's why I know I can preach this. Uh, two weeks ago, I finished the sermon with the story of my father's death. This week, I want to finish my sermon with the story of his conversion. This is why I know that this is true. Uh, my father was not born in a good home. Uh, he was abandoned as a baby, fostered into multiple homes. As a teenager, he joined the RAF to run away from his problems. Uh, those problems never left him, though. Uh, He turned to alcohol to drown out the anger, the fear, the shame, the rejection. And over years, this alcohol intake increased as the depravity of childhood surfaced and continued to surface. Soon life became about work and about alcohol. Uh, He left the RAF. He joined the police in Edinburgh and he was good at his job. Man, the stories he could tell. He had a knack of being in the right place at the right time. I don't know if that's a skill, but he just seemed to have it. But again, he was haunted by his past, and he drank more and more. He was what we would define as a functioning alcoholic. He was able to work and to some extent hide the drowning of his sorrows. But slowly he began not to function. The alcohol intake led him to his first heart attack, and he actually died on that table. Uh, The doctors, being amazing at what they do, brought him back to life. In his pride and his arrogance, and yes, I am talking about my own father, he stood as Nebuchadnezzar did. He said, I won't change. Do you not know who I am? What's a heart attack? I can beat that. He kept drinking. He kept drowning his sorrows. And this only led to his second heart attack when I was two years old. And once again, he died on the table. And once again, God used the doctors to bring him back to life. He's now medically retired from the police at this point, And his body was all but gone. There was very little life left. His heart was damaged beyond repair. But he kept drinking himself into oblivion. Until one day, God sent someone into his life who talked about a Jesus who had compassion for him, who pointed to another way of dealing with these problems, 
who pointed to a heavenly father who sent his son to die on a cross so that he did not have to live a life full of guilt. When I was seven, my father became a Christian. On that day, he went teetotal overnight. He stopped drinking. He stopped smoking instantly. He never touched another drop. And God then used him in service for six years until, as I mentioned two weeks ago, he died when I was 13. What is the point in this story? I praise God that he had patience with my father. I praise him that he woke him up from his arrogance and caused and allowed two heart attacks to the brink of death to remind him he was not Lord over his life. Because of this patience, I am now a dad. And we are now into our second generation that has not touched alcohol and is being raised in a Christian home. Because God had patience. But what happens if that person did not come to see my dad? What would happen if he was not woken up from his arrogance and pride of alcohol and saying, I can cope with this, I can handle it. I can tell you one thing, I wouldn't be standing here right now. I highly doubt I would have children. I highly doubt I would have the life I have now. The excuses, the attempts, the plain old arrogance and pride. In Jesus, we are called to cut it out. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, and I say the same thing this morning, and I can say it because I believe it, because I've seen it. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Renounce your sins. Turn to Jesus. Bow before him. Humble yourself. You can't keep going the way you live. Excuses don't cut it anymore attempts don't cut it anymore god has patience but one day that patience will not be there do you genuinely believe you can go toe to toe with the great most high god and win king nebuchadnezzar didn't my father certainly didn't john 3:16 says this for God so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life that is a verse we quote often we forget verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him God is not condemning you for your sin he is saying I'm being patient with you to bring you to repentance, to save you. I would be amiss as a pastor, as a friend, to not say, cut the excuses out. Stop just faking the attempts, turning up at church and thinking, if I put plaster a smile on my face, I'm going to be fine. You're not going to be fine when God calls you and you realize you called the bluff incorrectly. Now, I'm not advocating gambling. It's the only way I can figure out how to explain this. But I pray as a church, we will be like that person that came to my dad 
and we wake people up through the word of God. Time is running out. Make the choice. Are you going to be a King Nebuchadnezzar? Or are you going to be a faithful Daniel? Let's pray.